Wars an adventure. And Luke likes to go out and do Star Wars with the guys. Run Venus as be home button, cause I'm your father. Hello and welcome to a Star Wars podcast. This is Tarkin Pod. Uh, I'm this week's host, Ethan. Uh, with me is the usual host, Jack. Hey, man. A returning guest and friend of the show, Jim Greenham. Hello, hello. And co-host Ruben Trinkini. What's up? So this week we are discussing uh, The Mandalorian with the highly anticipated second season coming out, first episode airing uh, in just three days after the uh, recording of this podcast. Um, we're going to do a recap uh, episode by episode and then we'll discuss um, our thoughts on it and then also maybe some behind the scenes and, and try and get us uh, keen for, for season two. So starting off with episode one, uh, Jack, do you want to, as you're the person who's most recently seen it, air your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so I, I, in preparation for this episode, crammed the last four episodes because that's what I hadn't seen. I'd seen the first five as they came out, so I've probably seen them as, most, as recently as you guys. Um, but I am a little bit rusty on the first episode. I... I'd be interested to know just overall what everyone's um, views, like positive or negative for Mandalorian are. I loved it from the word go. Um, yeah, that first scene, like Ice Planet, whole deal in the cantina just immediately got me hooked. Um, from that moment, I was just super keen. My uh, initial thoughts watching it was it seems very... Uh, I think I was watching it with Ruben and my brother Jude. I think my initial thoughts was uh, this seems very... Uh, I've forgotten the word now. It's not good for a podcast where it's just words. Um, it seems very fan-like made, like a fan movie. Mm-hmm. The quality was... like The detail was very high in the production, um, which tends to be a, a theme in, in fan films. Um, and the general vibe and the atmosphere was all there straight away from the beginning. You were thrown into Star Wars. I love that. Um, but watching it episode by episode kind of seemed to drag it out. I expected a little bit more from it. So my first viewing, I wasn't a huge fan. Um, um, yeah, I'm a bit like Ethan. I was, I appreciated a lot of things about it, but I was left quite cold. I think um, I just didn't, it's not that it didn't work. It just didn't give me the feels. I wasn't instantly hooked. I watched it because it was a Star Wars thing that was coming out and because the production value was great and I liked a lot of the people involved. But, um, the, yeah, there wasn't much in it that I loved. Right. I think it's a really good show. I think it's it's got a lot of merit. Um, the one thing I will say about it is I find it incredibly slow sometimes and therefore it... it it seems like a chore to watch some of the episodes and we'll get to them. The ones specifically talking about um, at some point later on. I think what's interesting with that is that um, I, I, I love things that are quite slow in pace. Um, And I actually really didn't have a problem with the pacing, Um, but I did rewatch the first three episodes today and 
really struggled to stay awake and then did fall asleep. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that I definitely don't have a problem with the pacing. I love the tone. Um, and the pace is, is a huge part of that. Um, maybe, maybe it was just not my day for it, but, um, I, I do. Yeah. It'll be interesting to hear some more of your thoughts as we go through episode by episode, um, as to why you think that might be a thing. Yeah. It was just a couple of episodes that really stuck out as, as a bit of a drag. Um, but if we want to talk about, um, the first episode, as Ethan, uh, said, Jim, you probably are the biggest fan of it here. You said you loved it from the very beginning. So do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of what you remember from episode one? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, like the first scene was really good. Um, I mean, I guess I've always been kind of pretty invested in the whole Mandalorian idea, um, you know, from long before Disney came about. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of thinking, now, even um, the, I think the first chapter one and chapter two, I watched um, a f- quite a few times because I was showing different family members and um, whatever. So those two episodes are kind of straight into one melded in my mind. Um, but chapter one, I guess, sets up the overall premise for the show. Um, you know, Mandalorian, Bounty Hunter, um, at least at the start lone wolf kind of thing um you know out to collect marks and earn earn money um but yeah then obviously moves into the particular job that um where where he encounters the child and yeah i guess that leads straight into chapter two but um i guess that's a very brief rundown of sort of what happens but um, I guess Ruben would then be the one who's, I guess, seen it the most recently. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, but a few hours ago, the first few episodes, um, I think for me, episode two was probably the episode that I had the biggest issue with, um, when I first watched it. Um, not that it's an issue. I just didn't love it. Um, I think, it's, it's not that I had high expectations. I just wanted to love it. Um, and I just didn't. Uh, and episode three, especially the kind of, um, the fight, the finale of that episode, I guess was pretty awesome. And that kind of got me a little bit more on board, but having watched those three episodes pretty much back to back today, um, for me, hugely improved by watching them together. Um, I really like a very, um, I like a TV series that has that limited series feel. Every episode um, matters to the next. You can't watch them out of order. Um, I think um, what I I think part of what I didn't love was a little bit of the kind of uh, a bit of a video game feel to it. It felt like there was a main plot and then there were side quests and I was interested in the main plot and the side quests were not so interesting. But that definitely... I think a good example of that, the reason I bring it up is um, the, what's it called? Mud, mud something. The big old Mudhorn. rhino fella. Mudhorn, Mudhorn in episode two did not like that little kind of what felt like a side quest when I first watched it. Um, but I think it very much benefits from watching it together. It 
not only does it make more sense, but it feels so much more necessary when you watch episode two directly after episode one instead of a week later, and then episode three directly after that. Um, so that's kind of like you were saying, the kind of basic plot, the collecting of the bounty meeting uh, Tyker droid, which is fun. Um, and then uh, the ship being destroyed by the Jawas, the Mudhorn, and then the delivery of the child. Um, all much improved by watching, for me, all together. I definitely agree That's... with Ruben. The, the first time I saw it, um, I wasn't a fan of, particularly chapter two, like chapter one, uh, cha- like the first chapter got me quite excited with the delivery of the child, uh, what, sorry, with the um, tracking of the target. It starts off and he, you know, Mandalorian walks into a cantina in the ice, like Jim was saying, the ice world. Was it Hoth? Hoth-like world. Um, and it just looks awesome. No? Anyway, I don't think um, no, yeah, I agree. But in the ice world, it looked amazing. I got like keen for it and hyped for the like series from the episode. And then chapter two with the mud horn, I really, really don't like Tatooine. I don't like sand, <laughs> not to be cliche, but... Uh, <laughs> okay, chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's just a boring planet to me. In the original films, obviously, it's much more interesting and it's much... It's amazing. But in this, in chapter two, I wasn't a huge fan of the Jawas. I wasn't a huge fan of that entire side quest. The Mudhorn section proved a point that was much needed with the um, babe, the child using the force to protect the Mando. Um, but apart from that particular scene, I felt like that whole chapter was drawn out. Um, but then watching it, like you said, Ruben, back to back, all in a row. I binged the whole season in like a day and a half. And um, that made it a lot better because it did have a lot more meaning. And yeah, it really flowed on a lot, a lot nicer. I think what I struggled with was um, that because, because it's beautiful, because the score is incredible, because the characters are really instantly engaging and because it's in the Star Wars universe, like I said, I wanted to love it. I think watching it week to week, I just wanted more story and I didn't feel like there was enough story probably in episode one or episode two because the synopsis for the first three episodes really can be broken down into three sentences and that should really be fine. Um, That shouldn't be a problem at all. But um, pacing aside, it just felt like there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of story. And so it felt like what there was was unnecessary. And I wanted to put that to one side to get on with the actual story. But then when you watch it in the context of, putting it all together um it's everything starts to feel more necessary and i didn't really encounter that problem on a second viewing it's really interesting hearing you guys uh talk a lot about this and it's probably the reason why um i felt a far more instant um i don't know i guess maybe even an an appreciation for that kind of style because i can remember after i watched i can't remember if it was chapter two or chapter three but uh, my brother hadn't seen it yet. And I remember talking to him and I was like, oh, it's crazy. The way they tell the story is so similar to a video game, you know, like, you know, there's a sort of a side quest sort of deal and whatever. And I really like that. I don't even know why I can't even relate a show that sort of does that to the same degree necessarily as the Mandalorian. But that was one of the draws for me um, pretty much. So yeah, probably just lends to why I guess I have, yeah, more of a love for it than, um, like, especially initially. Um, but, yeah. 
I feel like video game for me, video game storytelling feels like it should just stay in video games. I don't remember a good video game adaptation from from game to to screen in any way. Video games are in their very nature cinematic, um, but they are interactive. And when you take away the interactive, the the cinematic becomes a thing where it's like, we'll just do cinema then. Like you're, I think, removing interactivity from the from video game storytelling really makes a story suffer um, to me. It just it feels disjointed and weird. And if I'm not playing it, I don't, I don't care. Um, I just don't think that that reversal works. I think you could pull, you could grab a, a, a cinematic property and turn it into a video game, but I don't think the other, the other way works. Um, and, and, and it's kind of, it's kind of hard to relate to this series because I don't think it suffers majorly from this issue. Actually, if I want to bring up, bring, bring up something that I probably shouldn't, I think episode nine struggles far more from the, from the video game style storytelling. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a main plot with so many side quests and there's so much going on and it's, it's a lot. This is, I think again, on second viewing, you see it has a lot more clarity, um, than that kind of style. But on the first viewing, it did kind of leave me feeling a little cold. I just wasn't as invested because I didn't feel like there was enough oh, important things happening. It didn't feel important enough and therefore I didn't feel connected to it and I didn't feel like I was learning enough about the characters to care what happened next. And then there were cool moments, like the final moment of episode three, and I'm like, that's cool, but I don't feel attached to these characters in any way. Um, I think what uh, you said at the beginning, Ruben, with the, the fact that it's a limited like series, it's only eight chapters. They're quite long episodes for a standard TV show for what you used to in Star Wars and episodes of just Clone Wars. They're 20 minute episodes um, and like 22 to 24 season, uh, sorry, episode seasons. So when I was watching it, it wasn't necessarily the side quests that annoyed me because Clone Wars is just side quests. <laughs> between the two like major films and, and I absolutely love Clone Wars to, to death, but um, it was the fact that because it was limited, I wanted more, which I think why when I watched it the second time around, having full expectations of this is what I'm going to get, I need to appreciate what, what's there. I had a way, way bigger impact on me and I enjoyed it way more knowing that it wasn't going to be as much as I wanted initially but that what was there did have meaning and, and was benefit, like enjoyable to, to watch and had such a good value and production. I think knowing there's a, se- a season two really helps with that too. Mm. And it's the fear of missing out because if you, if you watch an episode, like I think it's episode five or six um, where it's basically just filler um, and you're like, well, why did you give me an episode that was nothing when I could have had an episode that was full of plot and, and got me excited for the rest of the show? And so, like, as you were saying about the side quests, anytime they divert from the main story, you have that fear of, no, 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 no. We only have eight episodes. Spend it on what I want. And, and the problem with a video game style story in uh, something that's purely just um, to be viewed is, and you'll understand this if, if you've ever been a younger sibling, is you don't want to... A video game is fine 
And the way they tell a story in video games is fine if you're the one playing it. But if you're sat on the couch next to someone who is playing it and you're just, you know, very casually sitting, not involved, it can be one of the most boring things in the world. And so it's a dangerous thing to do with a series if no one is playing it. You know, uh, more people are going to get bored. So, yeah, it it ran the gauntlet a little bit in a few places, I think. Can I ask a question? Um, Did who of us assumed that there was going to be a second season? Yeah, I, I, I assumed like most things, if it makes money, they'll keep making it. And I I assumed Mm. that Star Wars IP would always make money. So I assumed that it would be a second season. Once I, once I, oh, sorry. No, Once I sort of saw the um, subscription numbers for Disney Plus on the lead-up slash launch, I was like, oh, there's going to be a season two. I mean, the show hasn't even really, like, it was just chapter one that had come out. And their subscriptions were through the roof. So I was like, well, it's pretty well a guarantee. Ethan? I, I don't think I really thought about it too much when I was watching it week by week. I didn't know who the directors were. I didn't know who any of the actors were. I didn't pay too much attention like I, I still don't know the subscription numbers for disney plus i don't know what it what it is compared to something like netflix or uh, stan here in australia or um hulu or whatever um so yeah i didn't i didn't know i just thought that it looked expensive to make but it's disney so i think in the back of my mind i was like maybe it's too expensive but they have all the money in the world so i didn't really I think maybe I had an interesting expectation because I I really identified with what you were saying, Jack, about the like, I feel like we need to be moving on with this story. There's a sense of urgency of you're not giving me enough. And I think it came from the idea of hearing a lot about what Disney is, Disney Plus specifically is doing with their Disney Plus exclusive Marvel content, which is a limited series that they've announced one season and and they've basically said there are going to be six episodes of, um, you know, whatever the the loki show whatever they're calling that um falcon and the winter soldier and um what are they called the scarlet which wandavision um they've basically said there's going to be like six episodes and that's it it's a limited series it's going to be like a long movie and whatever blah 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 and i think i had a little bit of a similar expectation with this and also kind of used to um when netflix have something that they really love they'll announce the second season before they release the first they've done it a few times i think most recently with the witcher and I don't know that I've watched any of the things that they have released that they've announced a second season for before releasing the first, but I can imagine that you would um, invest, you feel a little bit more safer investing in the characters knowing that there is definitely going to be a second season. It's already in production, even though this one, you know, I've only, they've only just released it today or whatever. So maybe it was naive of me not to assume that they would do a second one. Of course, this was going to make a huge amount of money. And even if it didn't, you know, it's Star Wars. If they love it, they've got the clout to do another one if they want to. Um, but I, I think I just went into it thinking that this was it. And that maybe, maybe that made me feel like I wasn't getting enough out of it as far as story was concerned i think after finishing the season um you realize that where they end up in the first season is effectively where they could have gone in the first episode they could have made the whole thing where he comes back and then he decides that he wants to find the child's um like kind and so he goes off and finds it that could have all been done in the first episode but now that i know that that's where the season ends and that they're taking their time um 
I was able to appreciate the episodes and the in-between um, a lot more. But also the fact that it's, it's baby Yoda, it's something that, well, not Yoda, but it's, you know, it's, it's a it's Yoda, Yoda species baby. We want to see where it comes from. We want to know that information. So I think as well, um, just putting episode two so early in the season kind of kicked them in the foot a little bit because they had such an exciting uh, like plot for the series for the whole series. The plot is kind of awesome. We get to find out where like possibly what Yoda's kind is, where they come from, the story behind that. Watching it the first time around, I found it slow because the plot of the entire series is so intriguing and interesting. And I'm super eager to see where uh, the series takes that. Um, I think going back the second time, knowing where this particular um, season ends, I was able to appreciate the in-betweens a lot more. And uh, chapter four was one of my favorites being so beautiful and so, um, adding so much uh, kind of feeling to the characters as well. Yeah, so episode four is the sanctuary, right? Um, yes. So I think we probably covered the first three episodes um, a fair bit, unless anyone else wants to say anything particularly about those ones. No? All right, cool. Um, yeah, so the sanctuary, which was the one you were talking about, probably one of my personal favorites as well. Um, uh, there, there aren't a lot of characters in the show that stick around as a very high um, rate of rotation. Uh, besides the child and Mando himself, it, there's a lot of just, here's one character, they're either dead or gone, and that's it. So we get introduced to one of... Um, it doesn't seem like that during the episode, but it's a recurring character later on in the series. Um, and... She's a badass and the whole episode is kind of phenomenally badass in itself. Um, the, the ATST fight um, is, is pretty insane. Um, and, and probably it's the first episode that has a lot of action packed into it. Um, and not that it's a massive scale, but on a scale that you haven't seen in the show. So it's good. It, it is. Yeah. Finally, this, okay, here, there's something something happening, something different. I've got to pay attention to this. And yeah, it's, it's a really good moment. I feel like that's true to a degree. I mean, episode three kind of ended on a bit of an um, action-packed, sort of crazy awesome, you know, Mandalorians going nuts kind of deal. But this was sort of, yeah, on a like, slightly different um, level. Um, I, I guess what, while I'm watching shows, I think more actively than I should about characters and whatever else. And I don't just sit there and enjoy the story. While I was watching this episode with um, my wife, I was like, oh, like, it's going to be good. She She's coming back for sure. And she's like, oh, just shut up. Just watch a show. <laughs> like, Don't worry about that. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, no, what a good character. She's, you know, she's, she's in it. Um, I love her character too because... Um, the, I think the casting is just fantastic. She actually looks like she, and she would like really badly beat me up and that's her character. (laughs) Um, you know, like it, all these other TV shows or movies that have, you know, these women that are supposedly, you know, ridiculously powerful or strong or, you know, seen combat kind of thing. Um, and none of them look half as strong as she does. So, I liked that. Um, I thought, you know, the the detail that goes into the environments and the, you know, Mandalorian's armor and all of that 
isn't just in all of that, but it's also in, uh, you know, the casting as well. Mm. I think um, with her casting, I think Star Wars in general has done a historically pretty good job of casting good uh, action, like stuntmen with Darth Maul, the original Darth Maul being an actual stuntman. And they Ray got Park. him back to do Ray Park to do the um, behind the scenes mocap for the last season of Clone Wars. And then in this, um, I've forgotten the actress's name that plays the character. And I've also forgotten the character's name, but uh, in Mando, she is, I believe a, a, an ex pro wrestler. So she has that, that uh, experience in, in fighting that really just brings the action sequences to life a little bit more than someone who doesn't know how to, throw a punch and who's being taught how to do that. Um, and also with the Mandalorian uh, himself, with all of his stunt scenes, all of his fight scenes, they had professional stuntmen because obviously they don't need to have any skin showing um, doing all of those fights, which also act, uh, adds more, or most of them, which also adds more uh, just dynamic energy into those scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Gina Carano, and she's an MMA, MMA fighter. Yes, mm. yeah. Because um, I also seen her in something else, but I can't remember what that is. But. I believe she's in Deadpool, but she is in a ton of movies. Yeah, I think there was something else as well that we kind of forgot to gl- that we glossed over in Chapter Three. Chapter Three, we see a bit of his backstory, Amanda, um, mm. when he's getting his, I think it's his Biscar shoulder piece um, hammered out. It goes through the flashbacks of when he was being picked up by the Mandalorians on his home planet. Mm. And that was something that I took, uh, I didn't like very much because in the Clone Wars, the Mandalorians are a race of people. And in this, it seems like they're a clan, Um, but it just kind of, I had to get used to the fact that with the passing of time, Mandalorians were no longer a a race of people, but rather a clan of people um, in this particular case. I found it really interesting, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit more, Ethan, that um, I, I had the exact same feeling. I love the Mandalorians are my absolute favorite part of the Clone Wars, um, all of the Mandalorian stories and going on into Rebels as well. And um, I kind of struggled with that too. I was like, well, I feel like it feels like they're doing a real 180 on the mythology. And it annoyed me because um, it, it's obviously going to get higher viewing figures. More people are going to watch The Mandalorian being live action than the pe- than people will watch the uh, animated cartoons, which are quote-unquote for kids. And um, that kind of annoyed me. It felt like they were erasing a, a lot of my favourite work. But then you look at who created the show and it's the same person. Dave Filoni directed episode one um, and he is pretty much in charge of this whole thing. And, and when you look at um, some interviews regarding... Um, the future of this show he talks a lot about um the way that he plans to integrate those stories not the obviously not animation and live action but they definitely take place in the same universe for him so i was really interested to think about um how his philosophy on Mandalore being a planet and a race of people and the fact that they take their helmets off all the time in the clone wars like constantly and it's not a thing I'd be interested to know if we get to learn a little bit more information about where this mythology comes from, considering it's not a huge jump in time. We're talking decades, not millennia. And yeah, it's created by the same person. So it can't be an erasure of one thing. 
um, it has to be a, a, an evolution, but it's not clearly explained, nor does it have to be, but I'd be interested to see if that's somewhere that we go, you know, or some, something that we learn further on down the track. Well, I'd imagine with the, uh, basically the final scene of the, the series, we, one of the final scenes, we see the Darksaber be introduced. Um, I that think was a that, lot of hype. That was a lot of hype. I think that will, they'll have to explore the reasons. The only people that know what the Darksaber is are mega fans of things like the Clone Wars and Rebels, and they want to see more of that, and they know the, the history of that weapon and really the lineage Intimately. of who's had it. Like they, they literally know the last people who had the sword and like who it went down from. They know it's, it's proper history. Um, so there's no reason to bring that in and then just completely ignore that. So I imagine that's something that they will explain further on in the, the series to come since it seems to be something that's not going to be like that and it's over, but it'll really flesh out the, the characters in between. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how um, he ties all of that in. But one thing um, I love about Dave Filoni, and it's something I spoke about on one of our previous Star Wars podcasts, is how he likes to take things that are no longer Disney canon, this expanded universe sort of deal, and likes to sort of reintegrate elements of that. I spoke about that with um, like Delta Squad, bringing them, the Republic Commandos, back into... Um, the canon in the Clone Wars TV shows and that sort of thing. Um, and the first place I ever encountered the Mandalorian race was Knights of the Old Republic 1, but then in 2 as well. Um, they're on the um, moon of Duxon. It's a moon of Onderon. Anyway, um, and in that, they are purely a clan of people. Anyone can join and become a Mandalorian. And as long as you learn and live by that creed, um, you know, like you could be any race, you don't even have to be human or whatever. Um, and so I like how he reintroduces some of those elements that you might, some, some people or some fans might be familiar with from other works. But yeah, it will be very interesting to see how he ties it all together. And I, I feel like he will. I feel that's been his plan from the beginning. So, How did it strike you then, Jim, when you like first saw the... Because the Old Republic takes place, correct me if I'm wrong, 30,000 years before mm. the events of the the saga, which includes that timeline that we're looking at now with the Mandalorian, and but also with the Clone Wars. So when you kind of saw those elements from 30,000 years ago being reintegrated, but there was such a clear, like even the planet of Mandalore, Mandalorians have a very distinctive look. Um, that kind of, with just that small, like I said, decades kind of time jump, did that, did that, was that jarring the first time around or did you just kind of go like, okay, it'll be interesting to see how this works. Um, I think, uh, especially because, um, those games were no longer canon. I was sort of like just happy that the Mandalorians were back in some fashion. Um, the Mandalorians were originally a race, like an alien race um, that lived by that warrior sort of creed. Um, but because of their constant wars and fighting, their numbers decreased to the point where they just basically expanded it to a culture and invited other races who wanted to be part of that in. Um, and so, yeah, when I saw the Mandalorian planet, Mandalorian, whatever else was happening, especially when I was watching this series and they're all like peace loving and 
you know, very passive, a little part of me sort of screamed and was like, that's not the Mandalorians. What are you doing? Um, but, right. you know, as, as you watch the series, obviously things change a little bit. And yeah. So what was that? What was that? Um, what was that? clan called death watch was it death watch or am i yes. confused yes. so death watch felt watching the clone was death watch felt a little bit more like what mandalorians should be to you then or or a little bit more of what they were i think um death watch was definitely more a pretty well how they're sort of depicted in the series like a mandalorian extremist group um sort of thing like they hold those ideal ideals but um yeah, especially in the in the Nazi Old Republic games, like um, the Mandalore. Then, what is his name? Uh, I can't remember now. But he's he's the Mandalorian in your party in the first game. Um, but he has like a really strong sense of honor, um, and you know, protecting um, people and that sort of thing. But also a bit merciless in the fact that like when they're at war with the Republic, if the Republic troops hid in cities that contained civilians, they're like, well, yeah, you shouldn't do that because we'll blow up both of you at the same time. Um, you know, um, so they are merciless, but at the same time have like that sense of honor where they wouldn't shoot an unarmed person because you have no chance of, you know, retaliating or whatever in a one-on-one type scenario but in war it's a bit different i think it makes sense for me watching it i was jarred at first um with the fact that they're not a race because in clone wars they all look um i reckon they look like scandinavian they're like uh, they have a particular style that they look they dress very similar their culture is quite um pronounced um but watching this it was a little bit jarring at first but then thinking about it i was like well it would make sense with their modern history, with their basically oppressive rule with Darth Maul after a pacifist regime, well, not regime, but uh, rulership with uh, Satine, it would make sense that um, they would be underground being a little bit more um, passive and honourable themselves, trying to gain their numbers slowly and and then uh, work towards building that power back up eventually, being that the, the galaxy around them, the the powers in play have just crumbled and fallen apart and changed so much. I thought it made uh, sense, but it just took me a little bit of time to to think about that, uh, to put it all in place. I I think too, um, because even back then in that sort of, um, what do they call it? Um, The, the expanded universe, but they have a name for it. Um, Legends. Legends. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. In the legends sort of idea, um, the Mandalorian race, the Mandalore is simply the strongest. They live, fight and breathe to find the biggest, strongest threat and tackle it head on so that they prove either victorious or they're defeated. And if they're defeated, they learn from it. But basically they always want to pit themselves against the strongest, whether that be the strongest race or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, seeing them as a pacifist culture was, was a little bit jarring, but yeah, I think, yeah, the um, Mandalore, Mandalorians of this time in the in the series, um, yeah, I, I agree with you, Ethan, that it sort of does make sense that they are a little bit more pacifist. You know, they've take on, taken on a little bit of both. Um, and, yeah, they've always used themselves as mercenaries and bounty hunters and whatever else. So, 
um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be very interesting to see if there's other clans that are introduced that he, um, I think it's almost, I would say almost guaranteed that he encounters another clan or, you know, a resurgence of the particular clan that he was a part of. Um, mm. If he does encounter Clan Auto, I would be very happy because I just remembered the name of the Mandalore from uh, those games, Candrus Auto. So if he encounters Clan Auto, that would be very, very, very satisfying. Jack, at what point during this conversation did we lose you completely? <laughs> it, it wasn't that I was lost. It was I just realized my, my MacBook was dying and I needed to put it on charge. Otherwise, this whole thing would would be in grave danger. Um, <laughs> look, I haven't seen uh, Rebels of Clone Wars. Um, and so the only prior to the Mandalorian, the only um, contact I've had with Mandalorians are the father son fet team. Um, and so like, <laughs> don't roll your eyes at me like that. <laughs> no, I wasn't rolling my eyes at you. I was rolling my eyes at Boba Fett. Which, correct um, me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a point in somewhere or something that said there was not a Mandalorian? Mandalorian? Yes, thank you. He's not yeah. a Mandalorian. He just stole Mandalorian armor. That's why I rolled my eyes. Interesting. Right. So my only contact with Mandalorians, in very fact, isn't even accurate. Um, but, I mean, I could be. I could be remembering incorrectly. So. No, no, I'm no sure I, I right. remember. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, especially if uh, the race thing that Ethan was saying, because they're definitely not Scandinavian. Um, he he's an islander, isn't he? Isn't he Kiwi? Yeah, I think he's New Zealand. Originally. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very interesting. I mean, but the those characters still. The, the armor uh, in itself became iconic. And so always a big fan of that, which I think was a big draw card for me. Um, very stylish. Um, but yeah, the, the, the deeper lore behind it and, and all that, um, the not really as embedded in me. So watching the Mandalorian, this is kind of almost my first time around uh, learning all the different ins and outs. So even in the later episodes of, of season one where they say the line, the Mandalorians aren't a race, they're a creed, I was like, oh, what a revelation. I figured they were a race. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool, but I have no gripe with that because I, I don't know anything else about it. I feel like the majority of people are probably similar to you, Jack. Yeah, so I represent, I'm the voice of the common folk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have always thought of you as common. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I think um, one thing that's slightly off topic, but something I really, that I think draws a lot of people to that armor style and the Mandalorian culture and that sort of thing is um, even in like our, you know, actual world, um, the Spartans are, they must be such a heavily, uh, heavy influence on the Mandalorian, um, the culture, but also, you know, the armor, the helmet shape, that whole um, aesthetic, I feel. Um, Especially the I, armorer. Mm, the character yeah. who makes his armor, like her her helmet is, yeah, it's got it's to be. Very. Yeah. Um, whereas the, the Mandalorians of um, the legends, 
looked nothing like that um, as an interesting side point. It's not really anything to do with the the show or really anything at all. But um, I actually think they benefit from that a lot more. And I think it lends a lot more to their warrior culture, creed and ideal, um, an idea that's built around them. Mm. I have another question if there's, if we're not moving on to something else. Um, when well, it comes we have to the five, six, seven and eight to move on to. <laughs> right. When it comes to the armor, it is on, it is, it's tendential, tendentially based on that tangent. Um, when it comes to the armor, did you find that I thought it was kind of bold and a really interesting choice to have a main character, especially like a known actor who maybe not everyone would know exactly who he was or what it was from, but you'd probably see his face and be like, Oh, that guy um, to have his face covered for the entire season um, for, for the whole show. Did any of you struggle to connect with the character because you couldn't see his face? Not at all. And in fact, actually I thought it was kind of this remarkable like feat of strength in his acting a turn of the head. It was like, I could read the facial expression. Um, so yeah, I found, I found that very interesting. I, I, I think with the face reveal, I actually think they could have held onto that for a little bit longer. Um, for you guys, perhaps, who are more connected with the Mandalorian uh, race or creed or whatever, um, and if it is a thing that they don't take off their helmets, it probably was a little bit more built up for you. But I think for like the average Disney Plus watcher, it, it was only like seven episodes you had to wait to see his face. I, th- I feel like they could have done that halfway through at the end of the second season and it would have been a much more like compelling moment because you're like, all right, now I really want to see what he looks like. Um, but I think also then too that the the state of the internet, if you really want to see what the Mandalorian's face looks like, you can just hit the cast on IMDb and then that's kind of, it defeats the purpose. So I don't know if, if the creators felt that need to keep it hidden when it already was exposed. Yeah, for me, I uh, personally found it being much more interested in the behind the scenes, well, not much more interested in the behind the scenes than the actual show. But the fact that it was a chrome helmet blew me away because with green screens, there's things called uh, green screen spill. And basically you have to get rid of the green screen. You have to add something in the reflection. So for me, it wasn't uh, like at first, it was just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Everything must be filmed on set, Um, which we'll discuss in a bit wasn't. But something that like with connecting with the character, I thought that it, added a little bit more of a uh, almost like a a reading a book vibe where I could kind of decide what the character looked like. I could decide what the main character was feeling. And I know that's not the point of a TV show directed by, you know, people and written specifically to, to feel a certain way. Um, But it allowed me to connect, I think in a way that I probably wouldn't have if I wasn't, uh, if I could see the face, I would have been connecting in, in other ways. So I actually quite liked that you couldn't see his face until later on. Yeah, I agree with Ethan. And I actually think that's that you're probably right in that. I feel like that is what they were going for as far as the um, not showing his face sort of thing. I mean, it'll be interesting to see their explanation of why either all Mandalorians or if it's just this particular clan that has that particular rule. Um, but I, yeah, I, I agree. I think they could have and should have held on to it for much longer, much, much longer. Um, I think the effect would have been a lot stronger. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't have any problems, um, you know, 
understanding what he thought or felt or, you know, um, what he was thinking during certain moments, like you said, like just a tilt of the head and, or looking in certain directions. I think it was really powerful. I think a lot of shows um, don't, I think what, I think what it does and what I like about it is it kind of gives the audience um, a bit of credit in that they actually kind of know what's going on. They don't need every single little thing shown and explained to them in order for something to make sense. Um, and so I like it when shows sort of actually sort of leave the ball in your court a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they could have done that a lot more. I think I think it speaks to the strength of his performance, which is very, very good, but also mm-hmm. to the very good choices that they made in performers and characters around him as well having baby yoda there gives you so much connection because for a puppet um incredibly expressive um and you know just very very good choices there but also all the all the other supporting characters you get enough from them that his performance is sufficient i think to connect you to that character i think the connection that you have to him his his sense of like the sense of who he is you really don't need to see his face because it's all based on his actions and i think it's that thing of show don't tell which i also really really love or prefer in in storytelling as well you don't need to have everything explained to you i think it's a really good example of of keeping the mask on is a really good example of being able to show an audience rather than having to tell them and yeah assuming that your audience has some intelligence i appreciated that I think they yeah. did a really good job of it because in even in season five uh, with the the rookie bounty hunter who had all the the fancy gear, you could just you could you could sense the Mandalorian's just annoyance at the character, and you know partially that was because you as a as a viewer was annoyed at that character, but uh, it came across quite well. I thought of being able to s- sense what the Mandalorian was sensing and, and feel what what he felt. You sense his competency above and beyond. Yeah. Yep. I feel so, like there's a lot of subtle things too, um, just like him breathing, sighing, and sort of the the tone that underlies those sorts of things. I think those are um, really, really powerful and really expressive, but very, I don't know if minimalist is the right word, but um, yeah, it sort of lends to what uh, Ruben and I were saying about, you know, just letting an audience experience those sort of subtleties that tell as deep of a story as, you know, if he had verbally or, you know, even with his face expressed everything he thought or felt. Um, so Ethan mentioned just before uh, episode five, which was the episode I had the most problem with as far as um, not having any sort of plot that related to the main story and it was entirely a side quest and incredibly slow. Um, basically the synopsis of the episode is it starts off with a bit of a dogfight in space. Uh, the Mandalorian ship is quite damaged and uh, he lands on a nearby planet to get repairs. Um, it doesn't have enough money. Uh, so he goes into the town looking for a bit of a job to do meets up with, as Ethan said, this uh, rookie bounty hunter who asks him to help him with this job. They go out to the desert to track this other bounty hunter, get into a bit of a uh, shootout, and then the rookie ends up killing his target instead of bringing her in uh, in an attempt to double-cross the Mandalorian 
and then he gets killed. The Mandalorian takes the money off of that guy, gives it to the the woman who was repairing his ship, gets on the ship and leaves. And that's the whole episode. And so it's purely dependent on... <laughs> like, and I know how that's how most episodes work, but it seems so filler that it's like, if you just didn't write the gunship in the beginning, we wouldn't have had to do any of this because it, like, it didn't... Like, I didn't feel like there was any growth, really. And I feel like that and then the next episode too is just full of... It just makes the galaxy full of scumbags that the Mandalorian can't trust. And I don't know if they were trying to build that for the finale where they were, they were showing there were a couple of people he could trust. But yeah, episode five, I think it's called The Gunslinger, was just, to me, absolutely bogus and unnecessary. I kind of felt a bit and this apparently is the theme of this whole this whole podcast but i felt kind of the opposite um i was like this i mean the only show that i can compare the mandalorian to and even then they're like so completely different it's not funny and it's not right to compare them but is um firefly space western it's like the only two shows i know of that fit the same genre and this is the most western episode of the space western um so i i liked it i think i it fit the overall theme and the overall sh- um, feel of the show i thought that the scumbaggery of it um is nice i i like seeing a grittier star wars than the forever polished main films that sort of you know um sort of get portrayed um i i struggled far more with the next episode than episode five um but um yeah i there's one there's one um particular thing in this that a lot of critics sort of don't like is that he rocks up on a planet and he's just like well i'm leaving to go and kill people hold my baby um and sort of a lot of people have been like oh if he cares so much about the child why is he just leaving him with any random stranger and I'm like, he's a warrior and a bounty hunter, not particularly apparent. And especially when you sort of look at his backstory, where his parents died quite early on and he was raised again by warriors and, and killers, the nurturing side probably isn't his strongest. Um, so I don't know, I, I sort of felt like it sort of builds a little bit of that idea in the character where it's like he isn't perfect either. He's not going to be like this, you know, fatherly figure 100% of the time he's more of a protector and still a warrior um at at the core i think to that point what i found what struck me watching the first three episodes again today was uh, that motivation for why he goes back for the child um well, the first time I watched it, I definitely felt that that motivation was a sense of uh, it's morally the right thing to do. Um, these people are harming a child, but it's not that at all. It's got nothing to do with that, actually. In my opinion, watching it second time around, it's entirely to do with the fact that I, I truly believe that if it wasn't stormtroopers and an imperial situation, he would never have gone back for the child. He went back for that child because of his hatred for Im- the Empire not because of his nurture of the child or because it was wrong. Otherwise, he would never have delivered the child in the first place. I think we see from his principles through the rest of the show that the reward wasn't enough for him to 
to do something that he would have had any kind of moral issue with. I don't think he had a moral issue with delivering the child. I don't think it was a nurture thing. It was entirely motivated for wanting to um, bust up some empire thugs. Yeah, I think I chapter I, I think chapter six almost uh, like backs that up a little bit though with his basically killing all of the pre- like the his previous mates and the people that were in there with him. He doesn't really bat an eyelid twice. He gets the pay and he throws them all in a prison and blows them up. The other thing that I was going to say is, look, I don't actually remember very well anything past episode three. I'm really interested to watch five and six again. I remember liking six the first time around and not loving five. Um, but yeah, I don't really The one thing I'll say in maybe contrast to, to Ruben, your little theory about his not morality, but hatred for the empire in episode, uh, I think it's either seven or eight. We get the flashback to um, when his uh, parents are killed, when the, the forces come in and destroy his whole hometown, the Mandalorians show up and rescue him. And I thought that was like, basically a very fitting parallel to basically like, you know, he was about to die at the hands of uh, enemy forces. A Mandalorian shows up, reaches down, picks him up and then literally carries him off to safety. And I thought it was very much like a sort of a paying it forward kind of thing. Like he knew he was there because a Mandalorian uh, saved his life. Yep. He was just doing the same thing for another foundling. I think that's a lot closer to how I feel. I think my main point is that if it wasn't the Empire, I don't think he would have gone back for the child. Right. I think well, it's that, that combination that of he, a Mandalorian rescuing him as a child from the Empire. And that's what he then does for the child. Whereas I think if it was not the Empire that he delivered the child to, I don't think he would have felt the same sense of... of I don't think he would have been as compelled to go back. Yeah, if it was like a random crime syndicate or, you know, some, yeah, random sort of faction. I, I, I do tend to agree with that. Um, I, I think that's true. I think I think he sort of finds it. I mean, there's that scene where he's sort of flying off. I think it's at the end of um, chapter three and it's like the whole cockpit thing. I feel like that's where his like emotion and that sort of thing more comes out. Um, I think mm. before that, in the first few episodes, I feel like Ruben sort of hits the nail on the head there a bit where it's a bit also not I'm wanting not, yeah. to see the empire succeed and not yes. like, you know, he, he, he knows enough that if the empire is so keen on this um, child and they're so heavily invested or the remnant of the empire, there's something more to this and it draws him in as far as, well, why is there all of this attention centered around this one child? What, what's the deal? And so there's a bit of intrigue there. Um, not purely, not just the idea of um, being a protector. I, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying that um, genuine attachment doesn't happen. I just mm-hmm. think initial motivation is what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. I think it's interesting that point you made though about Firefly. Um, I'm really actively trying to like this series. Um, I'm surprised that Jack doesn't 
love it. Um, I already knew how Ethan felt about it, but our brother Jude loves this series. And other than Jack being kind of ambivalent and Ethan feeling similarly to me, every single person that I know that has seen this, including every single critic that I've listened to, every single review, they love it. And so with the next season coming out, um, I'm trying really hard to like it. I don't understand why. It wasn't just that I felt... I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it the first time I watched it. I just kind of didn't. But with Firefly, and I I kind of... Making that comparison, I see a similar kind of comparison. I, I see a similar kind of pacing there, and I don't think that show necessarily feels like every episode is very plot heavy towards like a thing um, which is what I wanted from the Mandalorian but I instantly loved Firefly the moment that I saw it every single moment of that show adored and I did not have the same reaction to this show and I couldn't put my finger on why I think in my case that kind of was because I already had like I had no idea about anything about the Firefly universe I just knew that everyone had ever spoken to was like, yeah, this show is the best show ever. You need to watch it. And so I started watching it and I was introduced to these new characters and thrown into this new universe, which was obviously the much beloved space cowboy, uh, sorry, space Western. Um, whereas this is in the Star Wars universe. You want it. Like as soon as you see that there's a baby Yoda, you want to know more about baby Yoda. As soon as you see that it's a Mandalorian, you want to know more about Mandalorian because I love those two characters in the original movies. And so I want to, I have expectations for the rest of the sh- like show and for episodes to come. I want to know certain things that I've wanted to know for the past, you know, seven years while Clone Wars have been coming out. Um, so for me, that was the particular, the thing that kind of made me not be, have that same reaction that you would for Firefly uh, for Mandalorian. Expectations could just sum that up entirely. Yeah, but I wanted to go the long way. <laughs> no, I wasn't saying yeah. what you, I was saying could sum up my perhaps my reaction. Expectations could sum mm. up my reaction to the Mandalorian versus um, versus something like Firefly. Because you're right, going into something completely cold and just like letting a letting a new universe kind of wash over you and, and learning about those characters is one thing. Jumping into something that you are very attached to and that you know a whole bunch of backstory to, and, and yeah, you have expectations and you want to know how certain things relate and all that kind of stuff. So. So then with your expectations, uh, guys, what were your, after watching the first six chapters, what were your expectations for the last two and what, what were your thoughts on them? Um, well, I just wanted to say a little smidge about the uh, whole Firefly Mandalorian deal. Um, I only knew three things about the Mandalorian before I watched it and it was Space Western, Star Wars, Mandalorian. And they, I just feel they executed exactly what I wanted from those three things. Um, if I didn't know those three things and I watched it, my, out, my um, yeah, like you said, expectations may have been different. Um, and yeah, with Firefly, it's very different because you have, you don't have any of those expectations. And I feel Firefly, and this is why I feel they don't relate super heavily. Firefly had the... Um, the crew dynamic and you know you wanted to see what happened to all of them you got to know all of their stories to a degree but um, above all for some reason you just want these people to stay together um, throughout the whole thing Um, and so there's a a lot of different dynamics going on there that you can experience a lot more per episode and I guess that's what 
um, Ethan and Ruben, you're saying about, you know, some of the episodes in the Mandalorian where it's like, you're not just having as much of those sort of, well, maybe not those specifically, but you know, enough experiences per episode. Um, going to what you're saying about the first five, uh, first six chapters. Um, I was sort of, well, after episode six, I was sort of like, Oh, I hope there isn't another one of them. Oh, we haven't really spoken about six yet, but I guess the summary is prison escape. That um, it turns out to be a bit of a setup and uh, the Mandalorian is um, put in a pretty precarious situation as far as potentially being trapped and captured by the new Republic, which um, I thought it was refreshing that the new Republic was kind of almost the, somewhat of kind of the bad guys in that sense, where if they caught the Mandalorian, you know, he would be, you know, in trouble and that sort of thing. I like that. Yeah, but then, um, they're the antagonist for our hero. Yes. Yep. Um, as well as, of course, you know, the other people he's... As well as everyone else. <laughs> yeah, as well as every single person he sees in the episode, <laughs> bar the child. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think one, one thing I particularly didn't like about Chapter 6 was the two psychotic Twi'leks. Um, Twi'leks? For some reason, I just don't know how to pronounce that word Twi'leks? anymore. Thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just did not super like their characters I, uh, to be honest the whole time i was watching this episode i was like who saw the um what's that dc movie where all of the villains join together and they do a thing suicide, suicide squad, squad? Suicide squad. yeah i was like who watched suicide squad and thought oh i know i'll do that but star wars <laughs> that, that, that that is pretty well done. and i'm like i didn't like suicide squad either because i mean that um that chicken ep- chapter six is pretty well harley quinn but with two big tentacle things hanging out of her head and they're made out of foam and they bounce around terribly i'm like everybody else in this whole series looks fantastic but those two characters in my opinion did not um and i don't know i think i just had such a problem with yeah that parallel dynamic between suicide squad and them not that i've even really watched suicide squad i kind of watched a bit like maybe two-thirds of it and then i was like oh i'm actually really done so maybe i just don't really like that dynamic as a whole i I refresh my memory jack was um was this episode a bottle episode was it all in just the prison or was there other locations uh, it was majority in the prison. I think he shows up at uh, the dude. The space station. The space station. And the, the guy who runs that, he's the dude from Batman Begins, the falafel guy. Um, and yeah, so the, they're all buddies. And then he kind of does the whole, these are your new crew and you're just going to do this one last job for me. Right, I remember now. Give yep, me yep, some yep, cash. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, the episode itself has a couple of brilliant action scenes um, after it kind of all goes south and the Mandalorian is now fighting off uh, Bill Burr and uh, the rest of the, the crew. Um, and he deactivates all the lights. There is this one really amazing shot where the lights kind of flicker and it is almost like a Batman thing where every time the light shines, the Mandalorian is closer to Bill Burr's back and then they swap 
and then he's still behind him on the other side. And that sheer panic, Bilbo's character just screams like, no, because he knows he's going to get done. And But then as Ethan mentioned before, he didn't hesitate in, in killing those guys. But I actually found really interesting about that is that when he speaks to the brother who they are originally hired to release and, and spring from the jail, he, he says to them, so you killed all the others. The Mandalorian says they got what they deserved. After the the kind of events of the rest of the episode play out, you go back to the prison barge and you see that they're all just confined in one cell together, um, which I really like that because it showed some compassion that he doesn't kind of rule with an iron fist, even though all of those people turned on him and he would have had every right and ability to just kill them all what they stood. He was like, nah, that's not what I'm here to do. I'll deal with this problem in the quickest, easiest, most effective way possible because not I'm here cruel. to just keep the kids safe. Yeah, yeah, not vindictive. Um, and then, of course, Richard Awadi plays the, the the droid in that episode and it's pretty brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like just with what you're saying there, um, killing them would have actually been the quickest, effective method for dealing with their deal. Um, hoarding them all into one cell and, you know, locking them up is kind of a bit of a nuisance when you're running on the clock of the new Republic coming and, um, you know, potentially either capturing you or blowing up the entire ship. So it lends a little bit more to his um, sense of honor, his code and and that sort of thing where um, I guess he wasn't hired necessarily to kill them or he was hired to do a job and that's to bring um, the lesser of the crazy uh, <laughs> crazies back. Um, but, yeah, I, I found that interesting too, how he left them all alive. And it'll be interesting to see if there's repercussions for that later on in the series. It sure seems hey, like I it. I remember really liking that episode. I can't remember why, because I don't really remember anything past episode three. So maybe we can revisit that uh, after episode two. It'll be interesting to see if there's more kind of um, bottle episode kind of style um, random diversions in season two. Um if we're going to move on to like our expectations for six and seven, um, I only remember how I felt about them. I don't specifically remember what happened. So maybe we can circle back, but I do get the feeling that maybe season two will be a little bit more focused based on the season, based on episode six and seven. All right. So um, yeah, Ethan asked about expectations for seven and eight. I didn't really have, many um even though i knew there was only two more episodes to come it it was um i think i because i watched them banked up uh, i think it's called like um the, the two r words the reckoning the and reckoning redemption. and then redemption yeah right yeah so uh the reckoning i didn't really have any overly o- over thoughts for but the the thumbnail image for that is um the guy who plays gustavo fring in breaking bad being very uh, menacing and then the redemption. So like just from the titles of those two, it seemed like, you know, big attack, bit defeated. And then this, the, the, then the finale is the redemption. So it's like, all right, here we go. How, how, how do they then get out of the, the problem that they've created? Um, I thought the finale was pretty awesome. Um, mm. We are running a little bit long. So if we talk about seven and eight kind of together, um, mm. I thought, Episode eight, the finale, was a big return to feeling like a video game in that it really seemed like 
Mando leveled up. Um, when he got his clan thing chucked on his shoulder and he got his jetpack, it, it really felt like a video game. It was like, you progressed at this point. You did a boss battle and now you're about to go off and do other stuff. But before you do, here's these new gadgets. And I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it was awesome. Um, but since we started talking about the video game thing, I was like, actually, that really did feel like, you know, you, you've got, you know, maybe 30, 40% of the way through the game and they've started giving you gear upgrades. Um, but yeah, it was good. I, I really liked the ending, um, the, the robot sacrifice um, and, and the, the, the immediate use of the the jetpack they didn't make us wait to see it or anything like that um and, and that that little fight scene was phenomenal it was really good so yeah i think as a whole um yeah pretty pretty fantastic for a finale i'll keep my i like the dark saber mm. it was great i was, was happy to see it it made me very excited which is, I think, I was what confused. I wanted. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I think that's maybe maybe something that I felt was missing a little bit, and what I wanted was to feel really excited about something, and it was the dark side. It was like, yeah! kind of that feeling that I wanted from episode one that I didn't get until very late in the season. How did you I, feel? Oh, sorry. No, I will just keep my uh, thoughts on seven and eight quite brief. I have no majorly uh, concerns or or disappointments with them. But I was going to say for something very similar to Ruben. I was very happy to see uh, the Darksaber come back and it got me excited for season two. Not necessarily because of the Darksaber itself, but because of what it means for what season two will explore being probably um, more Mandalorian-based um, lore and then also more Baby Yoda lore, which are the two things that I watched the show for. Um, so I, 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 I like them both. Yeah, I particularly liked Chapter 7 um, with the introduction of um, the Moth. Uh, I think it's good to have now a very clear picture of um, who's been behind all of this and sort of why, well, not necessarily why it's happening, but a little bit more about why it's happening and um, at least who's been directing it. Um, I really, yeah, I really liked him getting his level up, as Jack calls it. Um, Chapter 8... Yeah, I really like the ending. I too knew what the dark saber was, so um, that was a really big surprise, and it was really, really, really good. Um, I certainly was not expecting to see the dark saber in this series. Yeah, me neither. No. The the other thing I really liked about um, chapter eight, um, I think it gives him a bit more motivation, but it also raises the stakes in a way. In when he just discovers his entire clan clan's armor and she's just melting them down being like well you know we have to start from scratch essentially um i thought that was pretty bold pretty interesting it also signed kind of in my mind removes a bit of a safety net for the mandalorian you know there's Mm -hmm. no more army of mandalorians swooping in at the last minute um you know we don't know how many or who of them um sort of survived that culling um but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I don't know what her name is even, but it, um, the Smith, the leader of the Mandalorians, who she is for one, I'm very intrigued, especially because of the dark saber. It's sort of like, oh, well, this could be t- kind of tied in, in a few different directions. Um, also, you know, what she does as far as building up the clan and if he has a hand in that, 
at all. Um, it'll be pretty interesting. Um, how did you feel, Jack? Did you did you f- immediately figure that was a lightsaber? Um, what did you think about particularly the color slash shape, overall shape of the, the sword? Yeah, so I was confused a little bit because when you see it, um, it only sticks out about this much uh, when he's cutting through the external plate of the the destroyed TIE fighter. Um, And so I thought uh, to begin with, because we had seen earlier in the episode, um, the nurse droid had a little like welder thing to cut the sewer grate out. So uh, to begin with, I thought it was like a similar thing like that. I was like, oh, okay. Um, it was very obvious that the moth wasn't dead, um, you know, just because the, we didn't see the ship explode into a billion pieces. It was like, uh, I bet you he's coming back. Um, so then, yeah, I see him cutting out and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's probably some small handheld thing. But the sound and the way it was cutting through the metal was very blaster doors in Phantom Menace sort of situation. And so I was like, oh, hang on. That looks like a lightsaber. But then it, it looks much more like a pirate's cutlass. As you said, the shape is very like straight one edge, curved the other, almost katana-like. And so um, I didn't know that it was something that existed beforehand. Um, So I had no reference as to what it was. So in my mind, I was like, oh, this is just this cool new thing that this guy has. Um, And... Uh, so yeah, not confused so much as I was just rolling with the punches and being like, you know what? Star Wars is Star Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So very interesting, but very powerful imagery. Uh, at the end of the episode, him standing up on, on the wreckage with it fully drawn. I was kind of interested to see, because again, at the same time I was like, is it a lightsaber? Is it just like a, cause from the distance, cause it's black in the middle and glowing white around the edge it almost kind of looks like it could just be some sort of like imperial stun baton sort of thing so i was kind of deal exactly yeah so i was very interested to see how it retracted um and i don't think he turned it off but i was like that would have been a really i think for me to be like oh that was a lightsaber cool what's up with that but they didn't so i don't know for the uninitiated uh, myself being heavily in that crowd um lost on me i guess a little bit and that's probably my own fault um but yeah cool nonetheless but just not as cool as i'm sure it was for you guys yeah i'm not mad at that though because i think that moment of like paying a little bit there's lots of stuff dotted through um I don't love something that feels like it's just fan service. I think uh, there are a lot of issues with a lot of, especially big superhero films that just feel like fan service. I feel like episode nine was just fan service and that made me mad. Um, I think little moments like that is rewarding fans of something like the three of us. Um, But when you do it right, it doesn't, it it doesn't, um, I don't think it detracts from the um, for, for anyone who doesn't know. It's just a mm. cool weapon. It's a good shot. It's a it's a well told story moment. And I don't think it's. I, I guess the deep lore isn't there, but I don't think it's necessarily confusing because it just is what it is for anyone yeah. who doesn't. It's not like what is going on. It's just like oh, he's got a weapon. It's that simple. At the very least, talking- it's. Uh- Oh, that's cool. It looks cool. It's got great sound design and it yeah. is a sword in a Star Wars universe. It's not like a big plot point or anything. It was just crazy for 
for people who love the, the history behind it and that sort. The reason I asked Jack and um, um, sort of the why I was really curious about it is because I was talking to my brother-in-law once he saw this episode and he has no clue what the Darksaber is whatsoever. Um, and he actually felt like the opposite. I think because his armor is so black, the TIE fighter is so black, I think he came out of it thinking like, why does this dude have some weird empire lightsaber that he's got? I think almost thinking like, is he supposed to be some Sith Jedi like thing? Why isn't the lightsaber red? Why is it a different shape? And so I think he sort of thought they went like, and made a major kind of departure from what we know about lightsabers, even in the name, you know, lightsaber where it's then the dark saber. Um, and so he was kind of like, oh, I didn't really like that. Like, I thought that was kind of, you know, um, yeah, a bit of a departure. And then once I was talking to him, I was like, oh, well, you know, if you're, you know, exhibit A, exhibit B kind of thing, it's like it makes a lot more sense. And so I, I would almost be kind of interested to hear from more people who haven't really encountered any of that um, expanded universe and that expanded lore about, um, yeah, the Darksaber and sort of to get their initial impression on it from that being the only thing they've ever seen of it. It's interesting because it goes exactly against the point that I just made, because I guess having the, having that background lore, it's, I can only assume what the experience is like. I didn't consider that. It does actually make sense as a response of like, why does this Imperial guy have a weird black lightsaber? Uh, that makes a lot of sense, I guess. Yeah. And I also assume that we're going to find out like, well, the, those who don't already know, we're going to find out a bit about the Darksaber pretty early on in season two. Not that that's necessarily a good so, excuse yeah. for creating a confusing story moment at the end of a season. But um, yeah, I do think we'll, we'll find out pretty soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't think... think um, sorry. Like I, Ethan I said, I don't think it... <laughs> <laughs> Go, Who has the talking stick? <laughs> All right. Um, I don't think it's as big of a deal... Um, you know, he wouldn't be like, oh, well, I'm not watching season two because random black lightsaber. Um, but he was sort of like, oh, you know, I just, he was like, oh, the rest of it was fantastic. I just didn't really like slash get that. Um, and especially, I think, um, I, I almost think if the Mandalorian sort of seen it and, sh you know, it was very clear that he recognized it, that might have been a different thing because then people would be like, oh, what's the Mandalorian's connection to this sword or something along those lines. Um, you know, I have no idea how you would, well, actually you could have done that kind of easily when he was standing there ranting, you know, he could have just had it hitched on his um, hip and, you know, the Mandalorian, like if, I think if there was a moment like that where the Mandalorian was like, hey, what's he doing with that or something along those lines, it would have been a little bit less confusing because it would have been clear that it's, uh, part of a bigger story arc. Addressing it full on may have ruined that what kind of moment for fans. So I guess they kind of had to find True. a balance yes, there. Yes. And if they do, even if even if it takes to the end of season two for them to fully explain the importance of the Darksaber, it will improve on a rewatch that moment for mm -hmm. anyone who, like, once they finish season two or once they, they learn about it, if they go back to that episode, they'll have a moment of like, oh, okay, that's a big deal. Earlier in, in the episode, we saw him um, order an attack and decimate his own troops and, and uh, people working under him. 
um, in, in a really brutal manner. And so I thought it was one of those things where they very quickly introduced the character and then built him up to be, this is exactly what he is, is a no-nonsense, brutal guy. So then also to finish the episode with him with this weapon, it was it almost just fit because you were like, all right, here's this dark weapon. It looks super-duper ominous and scary. He's a super-duper ominous and scary guy. Awesome. I immediately buy it. I didn't think anything was lost on someone who hadn't seen it the first time for me personally. Um, because they would, to me, they were just trying to like make this guy's the villain buckle up because he's showing up later. Fair. Yeah, for sure. I know that we've uh, spent a little bit of time discussing the, uh, the bit by bit episode recaps and obviously going off some tangents, but I just wanted to quickly, uh, just go into a little bit of, of the behind the scenes, something that I'm super passionate about myself um, and hopefully the listeners find interesting. But um, this show produced quite a unique uh, challenge being that the main character is wearing a completely chrome suit and in typical movies and TV shows when you can't, uh, or in typical TV shows, the budget's a lot less than a big budget Disney movie. And so you can't just do on set everything. Um, and being that they went to ice planets, desert planets, uh, different various locations, they were shooting at dawn for uh, hours and hours and hours, and it would have taken out a lot of time and a large budget to do everything on set um, to avoid uh, basically being able to see the fact that they were on a green screen the whole time. So they actually produced uh, kind of an old technology that they used to use in old James Bond movies and in King Kong where they did what's called front projection where if someone's, for example, sitting in a car, because you can't get a camera or, you know, an actual film back in the day, a film camera on the front of a car and drive it down the streets, they would get a projector and they'd project a road moving in the background. And then they'd just have the person sitting in a car that's stationary pretending like they're driving. And it looks like they're driving on a road, but really they're indoors. So they use a similar concept by building a six and a half meter tall by 23 meter diameter circle that was just entirely LED screens. Um, and then using, they called it the volume. So basically just like a big room that's just TV screens. And then they collaborated with uh, Epic Games with the Unreal Engine. So they make Unreal Engine. Um, and John Favreau, the creator of the show and the executive producer uh, worked with these guys for Jungle Book and Lion King. And so he worked with them again uh, for this to be able to connect the cameras that they were using to uh, the Unreal Engine. So they photo scanned real geometry, so real rocks, real desert, um, and made realistic lighting and textures that they could move dynamically. Um, so what it meant was that you could have in this 30 meter by six meter tall room, an entire desert and you wouldn't have the need for green screens or anything like that. So they actually filmed in real time with a real background. So then they had basically no need for green screens, no need for um, really, really confusing post-production. It allowed the actors to all be on the same page. So in uh, episode seven, when IG-11 is in the tunnel um, and he walks out and explodes, the actors were in a boat in this tunnel and around them is is this lava pit that's moving and the, the ends getting bigger and bigger, but they're all stationary. Um, so it allowed the actors to act the same. It allowed 
um, the, the VFX artist to be able to have everything there. Uh, and it just made what I thought like instantly from the get go, that fan fiction film, everything in, in fan, not fan fiction, fan film uh, vibe to it, where in fan films, they're all set, like it's filmed in a forest. If it's in a forest, it's all practical um, effects. Everything's there. And I thought it had that vibe to it, the show. And it just really um, struck with me just how beautiful it was. And I thought it was really interesting that they had this whole like state of the art set built for this TV show that allowed them to have something that in a big budget Disney movie they'd have, but for a TV show, it's a lot rarer to have, it's a lot more rare to have such um, immersive sets. The thing I like about this, the thing I like about this too is that, um, you know, like the first three Star Wars movies um, pioneered um, a bunch of um, filmmaking uh, techniques. Techniques, thank you. Um, And so I think I think it's cool to see another Star Wars project um, pioneer some of these things in you know a really effective um and really beautiful way and also another thing for um yoda the character they had um a puppet made by a legacy i believe is a company that makes it and they had i've got it written down somewhere here baby yoda they had six different operators so three to four people at the time would have different animatronics for the ears the mouth the eyebrows uh, sorry the eyes um, and then they'd have physical puppets to, so these people would be uh, like away from it on remote controls. And then they'd have physical puppets moving it for either like the arms or the legs or from above to move it through large scenes um, with strings like a you know, typical puppet would. Um, and so when they recreated this in VFX, they didn't want, because some scenes are purely digital for Baby Yoda, they didn't want to have this disconnect so when they were doing the VFX, they made sure that the movements were constrained to the puppet's movements. Even though an actual Baby Yoda might be able to move more, they decided to basically mimic the puppet. And I think it really pays off because watching it even the second time back after watching Star Wars Gallery, all the behind the scenes, I could barely tell the difference between the CGI and the, yeah. the physical puppet. And I think that's incredibly rare you- even in today's good technology. Using a puppet was such a very good choice. Not just, be, I mean, like CG is great and they could have done an awesome job with it. But um, even in The Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams choosing to use so many practical effects, it just, it feels Star Wars. Um, we associate Star Wars with practical effects uh, as much as we do with groundbreaking CG. Um, so it was great. But I think the effectiveness of it is really shown in how much of a phenomenon it phenomenon culturally baby yoda became overnight instantly even to non-star wars fans and people who had never seen the show and never you know had any intention of and probably still haven't and never will see the show still everyone knows who baby yoda is and is obsessed um it's a very effective character like hugely because of those choices that they made um to use a, a pop and to integrate such um I guess, subtle CG with it to make it feel real, uh, but also feel really good, like have presence, be tactile um, by using a puppet like that. Good yeah, choices. I, Very good characters design. I agree. Um, I think too, the, the, one of the huge benefits between um, using a physical uh, and very good puppet 
um, in comparison to CG is I, I don't care how good of an actor you are, um, responding to something that's physically actually there um, is always going to produce a better result, in my opinion, than a CG, you know, like you're just talking to the wall and they'll just pop it in later. Yeah, you know, um, and... Um, I mean, this thing was so realistic that, yeah, like it created an online phenomenon, but when you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff, like crew, like members and whatever else were coming up, walking up to it, talking to it, playing with it. And the animatronics fellas were just having fun, still being baby Yoda, just, you know, making it look lifelike. And there there were people that like basically formed a really strong emotional connection to this puppet completely off screen um, and absolutely adored this thing. And just anytime they weren't filming, there was just a crowd around baby Yoda. Um, and I, yeah, if it can elicit that stronger of a strong of a emotion, um, your on screen stuff is always going to be 10 times better. And the consistency with limiting the CGI to the puppet um, consistency is key in everything you, you do as far as, you know, um, showbiz and whatever else it's like if you know there's inconsistencies in any part of your story um, that's the weak point mm. and Doug Chang it, and Chris Alsman did the the major concept designs for the character um, and they did an excellent job because it, it meets that uh, perfect balance between being cute but also being an ugly little green alien <laughs> where it, that has the force and can force stroke someone if it wants it's not too uh, over the top in, in any which way Mm. Yeah, it's got some good good humour to it as well. It feels very human, which is such an important choice because it's such an integral character and because we're getting so much of our emotional feedback from this character when the Mandalorian's face is covered. Um, if that character had flopped, you would have so much less connection to the Mandalorian. Yeah, I, I think the humour is um, it's something we haven't really touched on, but um, the the child or baby Yoda is um, in some episodes, pretty well the sole source um, of that. I mean, um, chapter four in the sanctuary, you know, when um, the Mandalorian and Karajin have their like little showdown um, outside the bar area or whatever. And they're like fighting and then they end up on the ground, pointing their guns at each other's heads. And then the camera just sort of like pans up a little bit and there's baby Yoda just like, sipping his cup of soup or whatever it is, um, you know, it just breaks that tension real like effortless, effortlessly and really, really well done. Um, yeah. Again, I just don't think you'd get the same thing with CGI. I think um, coming from like John Favreau, you've got Taika Waititi involved, Richard Ayoade. When you look at the list of people involved in this project there was absolutely no way that there was not going to be some levity which is so good because in something that is paced like this um that has such a serious main character like it could have been it could have gone past serious into just being very labored and felt needlessly heavy without some levity to kind of break that and um there was i think masterfully done and interesting that they got so much of it just like a puppet rather than a, a human uh, performer is is pretty remarkable but mm, in the end think, a really fantastic choice mm, and i think as well the i imagine and watching these behind the scenes it seemed like everyone kind of had fun on set um 
these kinds of uh, technologies allowed them to be able to kind of relax a little bit. There's, uh, I think in episode five, the gunslinger, there's a scene that's in on like set on dawn. And apparently they was filming that for like 11 hours and they didn't have to go back every day and film one hour a day. They were able to just film it all day. Um, and even one of the, the scenes where I think it's in that same episode, no, I think it's in the first episode or second episode, Mandalorian is looking down his sights and there's some blurgs, which are the like pig-esque characters that um, uh, Quill uh, rides on. Um, those pigs are a stop motion made just because they could be, not because it was cheaper or anything, just because <laughs> John Favreau had friends who did stop motion. So it was like, hey, you want to do this like thing? It's going to be through a scope so it doesn't have to be perfect. Can, can you do the stop motion for us? And they're like, yeah, sure. So I feel like some of these things just added to even just the, the joy behind the scenes of of the show, which always increases production when there's high morale on set. Yeah, I, and there's a there's a part uh, scene also in chapter three, and I cannot remember the name. His only name is the client, but he's the dude who originally um, hires the Mandalorian, and uh, he's a fantastic actor. He's been in a bazillion things, and I can't remember um, his name. Werner Herzog. Herzog. Yes. Yes, um, and there's a particular scene. I can't actually even remember remember which scene. It's, it is, but they were going to use CGI and he was like, no, like, what are you doing? And he actually called uh, the director and like producer cowards. He was like, don't be cowards, get the puppet in here, like, and do it properly, essentially. Um, and I'm so glad he did. Cause I, I feel like that almost set the tone for the rest of the series a, a little bit. Like he had that strong initial impact of, Oh, actually, no, this will work. We can use this nine times out of 10. And so in every available spot, whenever they physically possibly can do it. Um, yeah, it's the puppet. He's, um, he's, he's, he's got a lot of clout, that guy. He's a very influential filmmaker. If you look at his IMDb, he has 73 director credits. So very yeah. prolific as a director, let alone as a writer an actor and a producer and a bunch of other stuff as well. Yeah, he's. When he talks, uh, you listen. He's that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I'll say that uh, we sort of glanced over a little bit with the last episode, and that's the sacrifice of the droid right at the end, IG 11. Um, I was pretty sad because I'm like, I don't really see how he can come back really from that. Uh, not only did he explode, he's now in a river of lava um i mean it's pretty damning you can never say it's impossible but you know if you completely rebuild a droid is it the same droid um it wasn't I thought when he did it was... the first time sorry it wasn't the same droid when he did it the first time quill rebuilt exactly him, so yeah yeah um and so i was a little bit sad about that um i think it was a powerful um scene and a like a good sort of um, a good story element and a, a, a meaningful sacrifice, but I was a little bit bummed. I do have to say, I, I quite like it when characters die. I, I like it when and stay dead. because yeah, and stated because I like it when a show or a movie goes out and says, you know what, we have real stakes. You should care when our when the characters are in peril because we might take them away forever. Um, so I think that's a really important part of compelling um, 
filmmaking is and storytelling is having real stakes and that was a really good way to do it because you do kind of form a pretty quick attachment to that character um so yeah it's it's i think it's a good sign for the um direction that they're going in 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 season two and it does make you kind of go like okay better pay attention you never know any any other character that we like could be gone just like that i very much very very much agree um yeah, I, like, I would definitely would not have changed it. Uh, it just made me sad. Another scene that has actually has just come back to me, and I can't remember if this is in seven or eight, but just on the humor side of things, which we were talking about a little bit earlier, but the two stormtroopers, um, scout oh, yeah. troopers, actually. Um, oh, man. That, um, that scene. Who, was that um, Jason Sudeikis played one of them? I believe. I can't remember. It was that really seemed like it came straight out of Red versus Blue. I don't know if anyone here has seen it, but that was that, the, that was. Is that the the Halo movie? Yeah, the Halo show. Uh, yeah. That was that was Griffin Simmons on top of Red Base, being like, "Hey, do you ever wonder why we're here?" Like just that, like, for, like because I think it was that, that usually was the overlooked episode in- eight. In these kinds um, of movies. So that was the start of the finale, I'm pretty sure. And it was this like, there is so much happening just over yonder. And yet they just spent like, it, and it was just like this static scene of just like, hey, show me the, show me the kid. No, I'm not showing oh. you the kid. It was brilliant. Mm. It was a great scene. And it was very Taika, which was, that was his episode. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it was absolutely fantastically done. It, and I think to, um, in the same way as that scene that I um, was talking about earlier, it just breaks that ice, it breaks that tension a little bit, but not to the point where you can't take anything else seriously. Um, but it, yeah, it it just like helps to level it out a little bit, and it was done um, so fantastically. Uh, I I I couldn't stop talking about that scene for probably a couple of days afterwards, to be honest. Mm. So the first episode of season two comes out on the 30th of October and the second uh, episode is uh, announced for the 6th and I imagine it'll be uh, weekly after that. But we will hopefully have this podcast up before the 30th. So, That's the plan. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I didn't plan on it going you... for two hours, to be honest. So <laughs> we'll see when it comes out. Just cut me yes. out completely. I'm cool with it. <laughs> you said Just have most. all of our reactions to no one. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah thanks for listening, everyone. The editing time. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for listening, everyone. And we uh, may have links to certain things on our socials, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, be sure to check out Mandalorian if you haven't seen it. And uh, season two. We've what are you doing you listening to this if you haven't seen it? If you haven't seen it, just 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 something done. to add in right at the beginning. Spoiler, Spoiler alert, alert: We're going to ruin <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe bits of Clone Wars and Rebels too. Yeah. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. I've been your host, Ethan. I was Jack. I'm Jim. And I'm Ruben. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> <laughs>